Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. In part one, we saw how Anthony's soul grew up and how he evolved into a violent predator. Please listen to part one before moving on so you can hear the full story. Now let's get started. As hard as it is to believe, Soul raped and murdered women from his own neighborhood, right in his own home. He hid their bodies inside his house and in his backyard. Despite the number of women who raised complaints of assault and rape against him, he still managed to fly under the radar of law enforcement. It's equally hard to believe his house and property could produce such a stench that the health department is called in, and yet they can't figure out what's causing it. With nothing in his way and no one to stop him, Soul continues to murder and rape for another full year. As detailed in the books, House of Horrors and Nobody's Women, these are the stories of Soul's remaining victims. Vanessa Gay was a wife and mother. It wasn't until she was about 33 that her husband turned her on to crack by lacing a joint and getting her to smoke it. It didn't take long for her to become addicted. Once she was hooked, it was downhill from there. She was spending $100 to $150 a day. Household items, including her kids' toys, began to disappear. Next, she turned to prostitution. Her hygiene was non-existent. She didn't bathe or brush her teeth. All she wanted to do was to get high. She would often leave her kids at her dad's place. One night, her mom was out on the street looking for her and actually witnessed her as she was getting ready to pick up some guy in a truck. Her mom was yelling after her, asking her if she was a prostitute. Vanessa was terribly ashamed, but she still wanted to get high, so she just ignored her mom, got in the truck, and they took off. Late one evening in early September of 2008, Vanessa Gay, who was 37 at the time, was busy soliciting her wares in the neighborhood in the hopes of getting high. Anthony's soul spotted her and wasted no time making contact. Soul told Vanessa it was his birthday and he would love for her to help him celebrate since he was all alone. He also told her he didn't like to get high by himself. Vanessa was probably thinking, jackpot. Soul went on to brag about what a good cook he was, saying he could fix her some beans and gravy, which would blow her mind. It didn't take much to convince Vanessa. He probably had her at, I don't like to get high alone. So Vanessa fell into step with Soul, and they headed off to his place on Imperial Avenue. As they strolled along, Soul told Vanessa about his service in the Marines. She was impressed, and that was most likely his plan. Vanessa also noticed that he was no stranger in the area. 
A number of people waved and called out to greet him. Vanessa began to relax. She was in the company of a respected former Marine, and he was friendly with folks in his neighborhood. By the time they got to his house, it was dark outside. Sol let Vanessa in and immediately began to close and lock windows and doors. A feeling of foreboding came over Vanessa, and her instincts told her to leave. Get out now. But her overriding desire to get high took precedence. As Sol guided her upstairs to his third-floor bedroom, Vanessa couldn't help but notice the disgusting state of the house and the nasty smells. Old food and trash everywhere and the stench. It was enough to gag a maggot. And Sol blamed it on Ray's sausage next door. Despite all this, Vanessa was still glad to get off the street for a while and was looking forward to getting high. But she noticed that Sol was acting a little weird again, walking in and out of the room. She told him that maybe she should leave, but she didn't make any move to go. Instead, she sat on the bed and waited patiently. But while she sat there waiting for him to settle down and break out the drugs, she also began to notice flies buzzing around. A lot of flies. She figured it must be the rotten food left out that was attracting them. When she asked Sol what was up, in a split second, he blindsided her with a punch to the head. Vanessa was now completely disoriented, and Sol was ordering her to strip. Not wanting to make him any angrier than he already was, she did as she was told and climbed into bed. He told her that she didn't deserve what he was doing to her, but that didn't stop him from forcing his penis into her mouth. That didn't stop him from raping her vaginally. That didn't stop him from punching her several more times. Throughout the assault, Vanessa managed to keep calm. Her ability to think through her fear is pretty amazing. Eventually, Vanessa asked to use the bathroom, and Sol let her go. As she walked down the hall towards the bathroom, she walked past a room with a big black tarp hanging from the ceiling. And there on the floor next to the tarp, she thought she saw what looked like a headless body. The body was in a seated position. Scared out of her mind, she moved on to the bathroom. She began thinking to herself, Oh my God, that she was getting what she deserved for smoking crack. Back in the bedroom, Sol continued to rape Vanessa. She did her best to stay calm, praying that she would survive this nightmare. At some point during the night, they fell asleep, and when Vanessa woke up, Sol's arm was around her. It was like they were a normal couple sleeping together. She was absolutely horrified and disgusted. When morning came around, to Vanessa's disbelief, Sol let her put her clothes on and call her sister. Then Vanessa told Sol she was going to head out. Sol told her he knew she was going to tell someone, but Vanessa played it cool. She convinced him that she didn't think he had done anything wrong. And it worked because Sol actually invited her to come back in a week when he got paid. When Vanessa was about a block away, she finally exhaled. She couldn't believe she was still alive. 
She called the police to report her rape, but was told that she had to do this in person. She had been raped once before and followed the entire process according to the law. In the end, her attacker got acquitted and she was made to feel less than human. Based on her past experience, she didn't report her attack by soul. But a year later, when Cleveland police began to find bodies in Soul's home, Vanessa recognized Soul's picture on the news. It was then that she decided to call the police and report her rape. In October of 2008, 45-year-old Michelle Mason is reported missing by her mother. They put flyers up around the neighborhood and searched the streets looking for her. Her family says the flyers kept disappearing, and after they found out about Soul, they were convinced that he was the one that had been taking them down. People who knew Michelle describe her as big-hearted, sweet, and very nice. When Michelle was 16, she took off for New York. While she was in New York, Michelle had given birth to two sons and contracted HIV from sharing needles with her fellow heroin addicts. After five years, she returned home to her mom's house in Cleveland. But once she was back in Cleveland, Michelle jumped from the frying pan into the fire. She developed an overpowering crack addiction. In order to support her habit, Michelle turned to prostitution. When she had unprotected sex with the man and didn't tell him that she had HIV, she ran into serious trouble. He was furious with her and shot her in the face. She survived, but one of her eyes had to be replaced with a glass eye. After her near-death experience, Michelle worked hard to get control of her life. She had an apartment on Imperial Avenue, and she was now receiving $1,000 a month from social services. She was battling bipolar disorder, HIV, and an addiction to crack. She was 5 feet 7 and only weighed 85 pounds, and she was taking a large number of drugs to treat her various issues. According to family, she did manage to kick the drugs, but based on her arrest record, she obviously slipped back into it a few times. It was probably during one of those periods of weakness that she ran into Seoul. It was October 8th, around 10 a.m., when Michelle left her mother's house, never to be seen again. Her social services checks were not being cashed, and that was a pretty good sign that something was seriously wrong. Her family actually hoped she was using drugs as opposed to running into foul play. If it was drugs, that could be fixed. But if it were something worse, they didn't want to think about it. Michelle Mason was found a year later, buried in a shallow grave in Soul's backyard. She still had a brown sock tied around her neck. She was wrapped in a black comforter, orange carpet padding, and black plastic bags. All she was wearing was a sweater and a brown shirt. On November 10th, 2008, Tanya Carmichael told friends that she was going out to have some fun. She was never seen again. Tanya was born in Cleveland on June 30, 1956, and grew up on the east side. Her parents were divorced when she was really young. Her father hovered in the background of her life, but she was raised by her mother, Barbara Carmichael, who worked as a nurse. 
Growing up, Tanya loved to garden. She was even a member of the 4-H club. Her mother instilled a strong work ethic in her children, but it wasn't enough. Tanya had her first child at age 16. Her brother was killed during a robbery in 1976 when she was about 20. A year later, Tanya had her second child and she named her daughter after her late brother. Although her relationships with her children's fathers didn't work out, people describe her as a good mother. She worked to get a better education so she could have a better life. She took classes at the local community college and she also earned her barber and real estate license and worked as a medical secretary and a barmaid. When crack first came to Cleveland, Tanya was a strong anti-drug proponent. She would actually chase drug dealers away when they got too close to her home. In 1985, Tanya gave birth to her third child. It was about this time that Tanya must have succumbed to the lure of crack. As a result, she lost her home, she lost everything, and things went downhill from there. Tanya took her kids and moved in with her mom. Before long, the television and car disappeared. She sold them for drugs. Her son's stereo went missing, and she even tried to sell a camera to her daughter. It seemed she was beyond help at this point. She would get arrested, but as soon as she got out, she was right back at it. She would go on binges and disappear for days at a time. As mentioned in the book, Nobody's Women, the morning she disappeared, Tanya asked her mom for 20 bucks to buy antifreeze for her boyfriend's truck. Her mom knew better. She knew it was for drugs, but she gave it to her anyway. It was so hard to turn her down. Later that night, when Tanya didn't come home, her mom and the kids hit the streets looking for her. Sadly, they came up empty-handed. Her mom called and called and called, but Tanya never answered. Next, her mom went to the Waterville Heights Police and tried to file a missing persons report, but because she was a drug addict, the police blew it off, saying she would be back when the drugs ran out. When people in the neighborhood told Barbara that they had seen Tanya around Imperial Avenue, she went to the 4th District Police Station in that district, but was told that because she wasn't a resident of Cleveland, they couldn't take her report. Cleveland police deny this. A few days later, Barbara found the truck Tanya had been driving, abandoned. She went back to the 4th District Police to let them know, and again tried to file a missing person report. Again, they denied her. Then Barbara went back to Waterville Heights Police. This time, they took her report. Tanya was 5 feet tall, 110 pounds, and 53 years old when she went missing. Her body was found a year later by cadaver dogs in Soul's backyard. She was wrapped in clear plastic. Tanya had been strangled with a charger from an electrical device, and her hands were tied behind her back. Gladys Wade put up one hell of a fight. She was relentless. She was a badass. And thankfully, she lived to tell her story. On December 8, 2008, she was visiting her sister and was getting ready to catch a bus home. Before she got on the bus, she stopped at a local convenience store to buy some beer and cigarettes. 
It was 35 degrees outside and she was bundled up. She was also carrying a bag of clothes she had brought from her sister's place, so she stuck her beer and her cigarettes in the bag. As she was walking away from the store, Soul approached her, saying, Merry Christmas, and asking if she wanted to drink some beer. She turned him down, saying she had her own, and began to walk away. Then, suddenly and without warning, Soul whirled her around and punched her in the face. She fell to the ground unconscious. The next thing she knew, she was being dragged by her collar up a driveway. She fell in and out of consciousness while he pulled her into his house and up the stairs to the third floor. When she finally came to enough to grasp what was going on, she found that she was lying on the floor next to a Christmas tree. She realized that her coat and sweater had been removed, her back and legs hurt from being dragged, and her face was bloody and swollen. She crawled to the door of the room she was in, but it was locked. Gladys began to scream, but Sol burst into the room and punched her several times. He told her she could scream all she wanted, but nobody would hear her. He told her to get ready to die, and then he ordered her to take her pants off. She begged him to let her go, but that just made him angrier. She began to scream again. Sol tackled her, and Gladys began to fight for her life. They rolled down the stairs until they hit the second floor landing. She managed to stand up, but was very unsteady on her feet after being punched so many times. When she put her hand out to balance herself, she put her hand through a glass panel door, cutting herself badly. She couldn't see well and was disoriented as she tried to make her escape. Sol was right behind her and had knocked her off her feet. They both tumbled down the stairs to the first floor. Once on the first floor, Gladys's hand found a doorknob. This door led to the outside. Before she could open it, Sol began to choke her while threatening to kill her. Just then, Gladys used her fingernails to scratch Sol's face. He was in so much pain from the scratch that he stopped choking her. She reached again for the door handle, but Sol was on her again. More determined than ever to kill her, he choked with all his might. And right before Gladys thought she would pass out, she grabbed Sol by the balls and squeezed with all her might. Sol was the one screaming now and doubled over in pain. Gladys pulled the door open and ran for her life. She ran right into a group of men that were standing on the sidewalk outside the house. When she told them what happened, they just ignored her. Then Sol appeared to be carrying her coat and told the men, Don't listen to her. She's lying. She tried to steal my watch. Others had gathered as well, but they obviously felt that Sol was more credible than Gladys and just ignored her. Gladys then ran into a nearby pizza restaurant and asked them to call 911. They didn't. They just handed her a towel for her bleeding hand and told her she would have to leave because she was dripping blood on their floor. Then, just like in a horror flick, Sol appears again. He walks into the pizza restaurant and throws her coat at her. Terrified, Gladys ran out of the restaurant and kept on running for at least 12 blocks. She was terrified that Sol was following her and she was too scared to look. 
Eventually, she flagged down a police cruiser. Sol was arrested on suspicion of attempted rape and murder, but he was released without any charges ever being filed. Although there was plenty of physical evidence to support Gladys's account of events, it was discovered that a detective on the case didn't believe Gladys. Just like the guys on the street, the detective didn't think she was credible either and wrote that in her report. Gladys was a mess. Due to her crack addiction, she was in terrible shape. On top of this, she had just been in the fight of her life. Her injuries were clearly visible. When people on the street and in the restaurant saw Gladys, they only saw a crackhead who didn't deserve a second look. They didn't view her as a human being who needed help. Gladys came from a solid home. Her parents worked hard, and even though they were divorced, they were both a strong presence in her life. She was really into music as a young girl. Her mentor was her uncle, Jimmy Garrett, a Motown records musician and the music director for the Supremes. She sang and played the flute. In high school, she was in the marching band. She was talented enough to earn a music scholarship to Central State University when she graduated from high school. As part of the school's concert band, she traveled throughout the United States and Europe. She was a regular on the Dean's List and very close to achieving her dream of being a classical musician. Like many college relationships, they don't last. Before she could complete her degree, she and her boyfriend at the time broke up and Gladys took it hard. Regrettably, with only five credits short of her bachelor's degree, Gladys decided to drop out of college, and that was the beginning of her journey into hell. Next, she met a guy who was bad news, and she was too naive to see it. He introduced her to crack, and in the beginning, it was fun, until it wasn't. In no time at all, Gladys was hooked big time. And now her new boyfriend was pimping her out. She was his free ticket to get drugs. Gladys eventually escaped this guy and found her way back home, but things were never the same. She battled an addiction to painkillers. She relapsed into the world of crack, and she found herself homeless and sick. Her musical dream was not even a blip in the rearview mirror anymore. Then Gladys had a turn of luck when she met a man named Leander Thomas. For the next five years, they shared an apartment in East Cleveland, and Gladys got sober. One afternoon, Gladys said goodbye to Thomas as she left their apartment to go visit her sister. What should have been a nice afternoon turned into a nightmare when she crossed paths with Anthony Soule. When Soule was finally arrested for the murder of 11 women, Gladys was in shock, and the guilt hit her hard. She couldn't help but think if only she had tried harder to get the police to believe her, the lives of many other women could have been saved. Of course, Gladys bears no blame in this. If the police had done more to protect and serve, instead of judge and dismiss, then yes, five more lives might have been saved. Kim Yvette Smith disappeared on January 17, 2009. She was known to her friends as Candy. 
She was born in 1965 and disappeared at the age of 44. Her father worked in a bottling factory and her mom was a bookkeeper. Kim was known to be an artist and a very talented singer, but she began to abuse marijuana, cocaine, and crack while she was in high school. She somehow managed to graduate and go on to community college, but addiction and crime often go hand in hand and it was no different for Kim. Despite all the times she spent in jail, Kim wasn't given the opportunity to enroll in a drug rehabilitation program. Instead, she continued to use drugs while she was in prison. Getting drugs in prison or jail is not uncommon, and that's just what Kim did. When she was released, her father took her to different rehab programs, but sadly, success eluded Kim. After Kim's last stint in prison, she was released to find out that her father had had surgery and was now wheelchair-bound. Her plan was to get her life together and be there for her dad. Her aunt was helping her. Kim was singing in the church choir and really determined to help her dad. On the day she went missing, she said she was going to go visit her boyfriend, but her family found out later that he wasn't even home. Obviously, she went somewhere else. Her family did everything they could to find her, posting flyers, offering a reward, but it was no use. She was eventually found buried in Soul's backyard. She was wrapped in plastic, and her ankles and wrists were bound with cloth. There's no way to know what happened to Kim that day. Only Soul can answer that question, and he wasn't talking. We can only speculate based on Soul's known behavior. Amelda Amy Hunter was born in Chicago in 1962. There were eight kids in the family, and Amy was the sixth. She was raised on the dangerous south side of Chicago. The south side is notorious for its terrifying projects, which are riddled with poverty, crime, drugs, gangs, and gang wars. At the age of 14, one of Amy's teachers got her drunk, molested her, and got her pregnant. Her daughter was born deaf and with cerebral palsy. This prompted Amy's mom to move the family back to Cleveland, Ohio, the place where she grew up, thinking they could get a fresh start. Unfortunately, her plan backfired, and things only got worse. After they moved to Cleveland, Amy and most of her siblings began smoking pot and drinking. Then, in the mid-80s, when crack hit the scene, the kids got caught up in that too. In 1981, Amy met Bobby Dancy, who was 17 years her senior. He was a hard-working man who drank, but he didn't do drugs. They had two sons together. They had a little girl too, but she died from a birth defect. Over the years, Amy and Bobby stayed together but never married. She worked as a beautician and is described by some as a bookworm who enjoyed reading Charles Dickens. It was years before Bobby realized that Amy was a crack addict. She somehow managed to hide it from him and stay out of jail or prison for quite some time. Bobby did eventually find out, and Amy did eventually get arrested on multiple occasions. Bobby had a house on Imperial Avenue, but over the years, he watched as the neighborhood deteriorated. 
With Amy going on longer and longer binges, he knew he had to get them out. Finally, in 2006, they moved a few blocks to the east. They had a nice home in a nice neighborhood away from Imperial Avenue, but Amy still struggled. The temptation to get high, the craving to smoke crack was always tugging at her. She just couldn't seem to break away. Too often, she would wind up at Soul's place. Amy had been to Soul's house more times than she could count, just like her cousin Crystal Dozier, one of Soul's earlier victims. While hanging out with Soul, other friends would show up to the house as well. They would all sit around drinking, smoking crack, and partying. Amy described Soul to her sister as a nice man who was nice to her and did whatever he could for her. He was a real friend. The last time Amy was seen was on April 18, 2009. She was 47 years old. She had left her home on foot. That evening, when she didn't come home, the family went looking for her on Imperial Avenue. They stopped in stores, restaurants, and looked in vacant homes. They even posted flyers, but all with no luck. Her family didn't file a missing persons report at the time because they had become used to her disappearing for days at a time. Amy's decomposed body was found in a shallow grave in Soul's backyard. She was nude from the waist down, and her remains were infested with insects. The shoulder strap of a suitcase or a purse was wrapped around her neck. She was wrapped in heavy-duty garbage bags. When she was attacked by Soul on April 21, 2009, Tanya Doss was 43 years old, and at 5 feet 4 inches, she was only 98 pounds. She had known Soul since 2005 when she had lived near him on Imperial Avenue. They used to hang out on a regular basis until he started dating Lori Frazier. After he and Lori broke up, Tanya and Soul began to hang out again. They spent quite a bit of time together. She would come over to his house and they would play cards, drink beer, smoke crack, and Soul would throw some chicken or shrimp on the barbecue. Everything seemed pretty normal until one night they were hanging out watching TV and the Cleveland Cavaliers were playing. That night, out of the blue, Soul flipped. He knocked her to the floor and began to choke her, swearing at her and calling her names. And then he slapped her hard in the face and ordered her to strip, which she did. But then he let her go to the bathroom, and while she was in there, she put her clothes back on. When she came back to the bedroom, he ordered her to lie on the bed. Tanya did as she was told. She curled up in a fetal position and lay on the bed and cried. While she lay there on the very edge of the bed, Sol tells her he should have killed her already. For some reason, he doesn't rape her or attack her after this. Eventually, they both fell asleep, and the rest of the night was uneventful. In the morning, Soul acted as though nothing had happened. Tanya made up a story about going to see her granddaughter in the hospital, and he let her leave. Tanya didn't report the attack because she felt it would be a waste of time. She had been raped the year before, and the guy only got a six-month sentence and was quickly out on work release. 
But she did tell one of her best friends, Nancy Cobbs, about the attack. Unfortunately, Nancy went over to Soul's place even though she knew he was violent. Saying she is racked by survivor's guilt, Tanya Doss regrets not reporting her attack. If I had gone to the police and they would have listened, maybe my friend would still be here, she says. Soul would later kill her friend, Nancy Cobbs, and three more women. Nancy Cobbs was the mother of three and grandmother of five. She was born on April 20, 1966, and was 43 at the time of her disappearance. She loved being a grandmother and spent as much time as she could with her grandkids. She would take them to the park so they could play and ride their bikes. When Nancy was working, she worked hard. She was working in construction at the time of her disappearance. She was also a loyal friend when drugs didn't get in the way. The fathers of her children were good men, but Nancy had a hard time maintaining these relationships because crack always took precedence. Her family says she began smoking crack after a bad breakup. Apparently, she had fallen into a depression and turned to crack. Whatever the case, it was downhill from there. Over the years, Nancy did time in prison for drugs, but each time she was released, she would go right back to using crack. Nancy had partied with Soul before, just like so many others. Her boyfriend at the time was even selling crack to Soul. She'd heard rumors about his violent behavior, and her best friend of 35 years, Tanya Doss, told her about Soul's attack on her. She wasn't deterred. She wrote it off to him being too high, just an isolated incident. Three days after Tanya was attacked, Nancy would disappear. On April 24, 2009, the last day her family saw her, she spent the day with her daughter and her grandkids. She left that evening to go to a neighborhood store, saying she would be back a little later. Nancy never returned. Her family filed a missing persons report with the security department of her apartment complex and posted flyers. They contacted Cleveland's 4th District Police, but the family says the police were not helpful. Her remains were found in a third-floor crawl space in Soul's house. She had been strangled with a ligature that was constructed of rope and cloth. Her body was wrapped in black plastic bags and a cloth comforter. Her wrists were bound with rope. From the book Nobody's Women, Janice Webb wasn't always addicted to crack. Not long after graduating from high school, she gave birth to her only child, a son. She and her son's father didn't stay together, so Janice became a single mom. She got a job at Corky and Lenny's, a local deli that had been around for over 50 years, and it was a bit of a landmark in the area. A couple of years later, Janice was arrested for having stolen property in her possession, but the charges were dropped. About a year later, she met a guy named Michael and they got married in 1984. He worked as a courier and would often take Janice with him on the road, and together they traveled the United States. In 1985, on one of their trips, they stopped to visit Michael's family in Los Angeles. Sadly, 
Michael's relatives are the ones who introduced Janice to crack, and it wasn't long before she and Michael were both using. This led Janice and Michael into a life of crime, which included theft, concealed weapons, and jail. In 1986, they were arrested for theft. Eventually, they divorced. It's a familiar pattern. After this, Janice was arrested numerous times for drugs and once for carrying a concealed weapon. Janice tried to kick her habit, but she just couldn't do it. Drugs were being sold right out in the open. It was right in your face, and that made it almost impossible for an addict to ignore or escape. Despite her addiction, Janice always stayed in touch with family and her son. So, when she completely fell off the face of the earth, it was not normal behavior for her. Tanya Doss was friends with Janice, too, and she made sure to tell Janice about Soul attacking her. Janice had a hard time believing that the nice guy that she knew could do something like that. But when you have a crack addiction, your common sense and your sense of safety become distorted, even non-existent. Janice must have gone to Souls in search of some crack, but got much more than she bargained for. She was 48 years old when she went missing in June of 2009. After she had been missing for a month, her family went to the police and filed a missing persons report. Her remains were found in a shallow grave under the stairs in Soul's basement. Just a foot of dirt covered her body. She was found with a green leather belt around her neck. Her wrists were bound with white shoelaces, tied so tightly they had to be cut off. On May 31, 2009, Talasia Fortson was last seen by her adoptive mom, Inez Fortson. She was only 31 years old. Talasia's birth mother was a drug addict, and her father was an alcoholic. When she was about five years old, she was removed from the custody of her parents and placed in the foster care system. After four years, when Talasia was nine years old, she was adopted by a wonderful, caring woman named Inez Fortson in East Cleveland. But Talasia just couldn't overcome her feelings of abandonment by her parents, and this is a dark cloud that hovered over her life. Talasia began smoking pot and drinking when she was just 14, and she was running away from home on a regular basis. By the time she was 17, she was living in a juvenile facility which offered a variety of services, including drug rehab and mental health counseling. Talasia managed to graduate high school, but she wasn't able to escape her self-destructive behaviors. By the time she turned 20, she had graduated to crack. She spent the next decade in and out of city shelters, jail, prison, and rehab clinics, all to no avail. Despite having a loving home, she wound up on the streets. Talasia gave birth to a son in April of 2003. She didn't know who the father was. Family services immediately took her son from her and put him in the custody of the county and a social worker wrote, the mother has attempted suicide four times and engaged in acts of domestic violence. The child would be at risk. 
She became involved with Terence Minor in the early 2000s. Terence was an ex-convict with a number of violent offenses under his belt. He was also 16 years older than she was. But he managed to straighten his life out and with no more arrests after 2001. Talasia and Terence had two daughters together, one in 2004 and another in 2006. Both girls were removed from her custody. Talasia had her children's names tattooed on her arm. She wanted to be a good mother, but she wanted her crack more. In 2008, she was back in prison for theft. Terence now had custody of the kids. When Talasia got out of prison, she went right back to smoking crack. At first, she had stayed in regular contact with Terence and her foster mom, Inez, but then she went quiet. Again, we can only speculate about what happened to Talasia based on Sol's behavior with his previous victims. Talasia Fordson's body was found decomposing on the third floor of Sol's house. She had a ligature around her neck. Diane Turner was born on November 4, 1970 in Cleveland. She was the second of two children. Her parents were John and Mary Turner. According to her boyfriend at the time of her disappearance and the father of her last child, Diane told him that she and her brother were physically abused growing up. She also had epilepsy and suffered seizures. Her life wasn't easy. She also had a very heavy drug habit and was well known to Cleveland police as a prostitute. She would literally flag cars down on the street for business. She had been arrested dozens of times. As reported by Cleveland.com, records show by the time she was 24, Diane had three children in permanent custody of the County Department of Children and Family Services due to her drug abuse problem and inability to provide proper care and support. Records also show that she was referred to drug treatment programs, but Diane refused to participate. From the book Nobody's Women, when her fourth child was born, both Diane and her newborn tested positive for cocaine. This child was removed from her custody. It was recommended, based on Diane's refusal to get help, that her baby be put up for adoption. She went on to have her fifth child, and this baby was removed from her custody as well. She met her latest boyfriend, Martin, in the late 1990s. He was a reformed addict, and she knew him from an earlier period of time. The two got reacquainted, and Diane asked if she could stay with him. Martin agreed, but only if she promised not to do drugs. Martin had done time in prison and got himself clean while he was there. Now out, he was working as a school maintenance man. Martin tried to show Diane how to get clean, and she was having some success. While living with Martin, Diane began going to church and even started to become part of the community. Diane participated in a 12-step program and was supported by the church. She fell off the wagon a couple of times, but she was working very hard at it and doing really well. One day, Diane and Martin got pulled over for a simple traffic stop. During the traffic stop, police discovered that Diane had a previous warrant for her arrest. 
She was arrested on the spot and ended up doing six months in jail. While she was in jail, she found out she was pregnant with Martin's baby. This would be her sixth child, and she really wanted this baby. Sadly, the baby was taken from her when it was only four days old, even though Diane had been clean for 21 months. She was devastated. Social services told Diane that if she wanted to get her baby back, she would have to enroll in a drug treatment program. She did, but she found reviews from the staff very discouraging. They claimed that she overfed her baby, that she fed her baby spoiled milk, that her epilepsy caused her to sleep too much, and for these reasons she was not a fit mother. Staff at the facility encouraged her to leave the program, saying they were not equipped to deal with her epilepsy. The whole experience was demoralizing for her. According to Martin, unhelpful social workers and treatment center policies did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. He feels they're partly to blame for what happened to Diane. She could have stayed in the program, but she wasn't emotionally strong enough to deal with a system that seemed so set against helping her. So their baby was placed in foster care. Martin got a friend to serve as their daughter's foster mother. He completed parenting classes and was able to get shared custody of his daughter with his friend. Diane didn't complete the required classes, and within a few months, she was back on the streets. After Diane went back on the streets, she and Martin broke up. But Martin says that Diane still stayed in touch, and he was there if she needed him. He said she was a good person. She was a drug addict, but she wasn't a thief. In September of 2009, Diane called Martin to wish him a belated happy birthday, and that was the last time he heard from her. He said this was unusual because, no matter what she was doing, she always let someone know she was all right. Over the coming weeks, even the people in the streets who knew her noticed that she had disappeared. Diane Turner's body was found in a room on the third floor of Soul's house. A black plastic bag was wrapped around her ankles and calves. Her body was lying next to Talasia Fortson's and was extremely decomposed and making visual identification was impossible. As soon as Martin heard the news about bodies being found at Soul's place, he went to the coroner's office. All but one of the victims had been identified and he wanted to know if it could possibly be Diane. They were unable to identify the last body without DNA. Diane's family was scattered to the winds and no one knew where they all were, so there was no DNA for comparison. Suddenly, Martin realized their daughter, then aged seven, could provide the DNA needed. It was, in fact, Diane Turner. On December 4, 2009, Diane Turner's identity as the 11th murder victim was released to the public. While the police were busy tearing Soul's house apart and digging up his yard with a backhoe, he was taking a casual stroll down Mount Auburn Avenue. He was spotted by someone who recognized his face from the news and they called the police. Soul was arrested on October 31, 2009. Detectives from the Sex Crimes and Homicide Units 
questioned him extensively. His bail was set at $6 million. The news media began calling him the Cleveland Strangler. On December 1, 2009, Sol was indicted on 85 counts, which included aggravated murder, kidnapping, rape, and abuse of a corpse. At first, he entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but later changed it to not guilty. The aftermath of his arrest and the discovery of 11 bodies in and around his home left the families of victims and survivors in an uproar. They were asking, where were the police when they were asking for help? In some cases, police refused to let families file a missing persons report. Police refused to investigate, saying the women would turn up when the drugs were gone. They told families to do their own missing persons search. Wrote off a murder and rape complaint saying the woman who reported the crime was not credible. Claims of racism could be heard loud and clear. Community activists believe that the police dismissed family concerns based on socioeconomic status and race, stating the police and the city just didn't care. The families and the community were asking, why didn't officers assigned to make house calls on Seoul, a registered sex offender, suspect foul play? For two years, they were aware of the stench in the neighborhood. They were called when a young woman fell out of Seoul's second floor window. They received multiple accusations of rape and assault at his address, and authorities suspected nothing or didn't bother to investigate further. Council member at the time, Zach Reed, said, It's unbelievable that the stench couldn't be pinpointed, leaving it unidentified for two years. Sol was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death by lethal injection for each of the 11 murders he committed. After a lot of legal wrangling, 12205 Imperial Avenue was completely demolished by the city in 2011. It took about two hours to tear it all down. The site had to be guarded by the police until all of the debris could be removed to prevent people from trying to grab a memento or souvenir. Plans were drawn up, funds were raised, and it still took 10 years to finally build the promised memorial on the site at 12205 Imperial Avenue. It was finally unveiled in November 2021 and is called the Garden of Eleven Angels. It is a living memorial and contains 30 varieties of trees, plants, and flowers. It also contains a marble monument with the names of the 11 women murdered by Seoul. To think that such a horrific event would be a catalyst for positive change in the community, city, or state is sadly nothing but wishful thinking. As of October 29, 2022, 13 years since the bodies of 11 women were found in and around Anthony Soule's home in East Cleveland, not much has changed, at least not for the better. According to the Cleveland Urban News, quote, Since the Imperial Avenue murders and in the last two years, 
Murders of black Cleveland women in the city have increased by 50%, studies show. And Cleveland is one of the worst places to live in the country for black women, a Pittsburgh study reveals. And in spite of this alarming data, nothing significantly has been done by policymakers of Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, or the state of Ohio, or federally to curb this heightened violence against black women. End quote. On February 8, 2021, at the age of 61, Anthony Edward Soule died in a prison hospital from an undisclosed terminal illness. During his trial, experts described Soule as a sexual sadist, an individual who is sexually aroused by the suffering and pain of others. Goldstein, a neuropsychologist who operates a private practice in Chicago, testified at his trial. Goldstein stated that Soul didn't have cognitive dysfunction or any other issue. He was simply a monster. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happens. All episodes are researched, written, recorded, and audio mixed by me. Crime Happens is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen. Check out my website at crimehappens.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with an all new episode. Until then, I wish you well.